ontological oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, professor of English and philosophy. Although many times our conversations on the show strain to areas that may be a bit dark or unsettling, rarely do we address these issues topically. Just as normal subjects have negative qualities, what seems to be an inherently negative topic can also have exciting and thought-provoking characteristics. So today, we ask you to stay tuned in as we discuss cynicism. Yeah, so, you know, cynicism... um, I can't help but think about the conversation we were just having before we started recording. Mm-hmm. Um, me and my wife went on vacation and um, uh, we didn't have anything planned. And so the whole thing was uh, pretty serendipitous. We had a great time. It was chock full of these fantastic experiences um, that just sort of happened, um, you know, naturally off the cuff. Um, and so... I don't think that you can have that sort of experience if if you're a cynical person. I think that starting with that mindset already puts you in a spot where you're just sort of, uh, you know, closed to having some of those good experiences happen. But and, well, and, and that and that is itself uh, a, a a shading that our present culture has brought to the word. Hmm. Cynicism too, isn't yeah, it? It, yeah. But we'll get. There. Yeah, it has a really interesting history. So yeah. we'll we'll first ask the question, which is a little bit complex. What is cynicism? Well, the very name, uh, in the ism, is sort of misleading <laughs> uh, because there was never a a formal school, so to speak, of of cynics. <laughs> and the name cynic and cynicism derives from words that essentially refer to dog. Hmm. Uh, so there was a, a building that, um, and I always mispronounce the, the thing, but it's essentially a sinosarges. Um, it was a, a structure in which people called the nothai or nothoi would study and work and and work out essentially a gymnasium <coughs> excuse me but it was for people who were not citizens uh who were essentially what we call the poorhouse um the 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 people who were marginalized hmm. and so in one sense this is a philosophy arising out of the people who aren't going to the more formal places and other, uh, there are other buildings that have been associated with different philosophies and isms. But it's a little more haphazard than that. And it crosses oh, what, um, 600 years when it was really flourishing and up and down even during that time from to about 200 years BC, uh, E to 400 um, and it, it has a commonality which is to try to reach back to what was said uh, being natural rather than be uh, embracing the artificial things that a culture thrusts upon you uh, want the desire for wealth or or certain customs or whatever it happens to be yeah I think that 
at this point, there's probably a few listeners that are surprised to find out that cynicism um, was an actual philosophy, right? There was yeah. there was um, Greek cynics. So, yeah, and I think that you, you 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 covered it pretty well generally. You know, it's and what's sort of interesting about it is if you look at the the cynical philosophy in broad strokes, it doesn't really um, allude to our current conception of the word very much. You know, a lot of it no. is, hey, um, you know, you should live your life in service to virtue, right? And you should kind of strip away um, notions of fame or wealth or things that get in the way of, of living a virtuous life. And, you know, you should work on exercising your body and yeah. mind and stuff in order to... to and that all sounds it. good. Right. <laughs> Until you get to the, the root of it, which is the shortcut to virtue. Because cynics of... Presented themselves as a shortcut. I mean, you know, there there are these things about it that, uh, even though Plato um, had some appreciation for the first cynic was one of his the, the first formal cynic, uh, Antisthenes, and and Plato thought highly of his student. Now he's not as thought highly of him probably as Aristotle, but you know, mm. but there were a lot of students, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so. Um, you know, you have Antisthenes and then Diogenes and then Crates. So we've got, we've got another triumvirate that sort of splits off into its own sequel. And, and what they're talking about is living aesthetically, um, sparely and, and eventually out of cynicism, stoicism, partially developed stoicism on its own, but it, there's a linkage. So Diogenes was known that the, the dog thing comes in, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, Diogenes of Sinope is a, the, the dog <laughs> because he lived in a giant jar, <laughs> or olive oil kind of jar. The Greek, uh, the Greek version of a refrigerator box. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And he would accost people on the street. <clears throat> So it wasn't uh, about removing yourself into some kind of hermitage. It was constantly challenging people uh, about what was going on in the culture at the time. Yeah, yeah. And that's where it's it's interesting is because in the broad strokes that I described at the beginning, it sounds pretty good. Um, but then some things stuck out to me. And, and the one thing that, that really stuck out to me um, when reading about it is, you know, one of their values was um, to live naturally, right? To live, um, you know... As you would naturally, um, and you know, in some ways, that I mean, you know, yeah, like okay, they they're living on the street, or they're in the middle of winter, they might walk barefoot, or you know, just wear a thin cloak, or these sorts of things. Um, and that's they they speculate that's part of where that dog nickname came from as well, is that they people say they lived like dogs, they lived outside, they'd sleep on the ground, they do these things. They challenge people. They would not be there. Was there were not ascribed manners to this right yeah and that's where um i th the thing that i read that sort of stuck out to me was they said you know when when the uh cynics said that they were gonna live naturally um they didn't mean they were going to work for their labor <laughs> <laughs> they they were gonna they're gonna live in the cities and beg from people and then yeah. um be a constant mirror that was held up to society about you know the the evils of the at that time, modern world. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of um, 
that's sort of an overview of of the the cynical philosophy um and that is that's sort of where the modern term is keyed from is Mm -hmm. uh you know when we when we talk about being cynical now um we're not talking about attempting to live a virtuous life and you know giving little value to to wealth and fame these sorts of things we're usually talking about um somebody who is um aggressively berating society and having a, a sort of um skeptical view of of modern yeah. life and skepticism and cynicism are often associated as it, the same but they're not and that was my very next question what separates cynicism and skepticism first a degree of roughness i think uh, diogenes for instance now we we don't have any writings of these people so once again and we've talked about this with a lot of a lot of different folks you we have what people said they said which is sometimes as close as you can get to the the history but diogenes is said to have said things such as in a rich man's house there is no place to spit but his face Hmm. (laughs) you know i'm a citizen of the world that phrase came from way back yeah they said that they they thought the cynics were like the first cosmopolitans in some way and the foundation of every state is the education of its youth Hmm. but what they meant by education is is certainly up up for grabs so so skepticism is to say i'm going to consider and and poke at um and not accept as a first principle something that somebody else is asserting um, until i research it test it try it and we have a lot of people using the word skeptics i'm I'm a skeptic about this or that today when they don't mean that because they're not researching, mm-hmm. testing, or trying. They're just retreating and saying, nope, I know what the truth is. You can't tell me. Mm. That's not skepticism. Right. <laughs> um, it's also not cynicism <laughs> in, in, this, in the sense of, of challenging positions and structures. There, there, there would be some who would say, well, look at all these uh, the, this this mule movie thing and everything we're challenge we're going to challenge every vote that's that's not being a cynic in a philosophical way that's just asserting what you already want to know without actually looking at how things are yeah and the you know and that's really interesting right is thinking about this historical notion of cynicism mm-hmm. um because like you said, if they didn't write anything down, we're at the mercy of the people who are chronicling their philosophy yep. to give us information on them. And so when you look at the broad strokes of cynicism and then you look at what people wrote about them, it seems that the lifestyle of a cynic versus the values or beliefs of a cynic would not really match up. And it makes you wonder if maybe the people who were um, writing the accounts of cynics um, were just rubbed the wrong way to such an extent that they might have exaggerated some of the, oh, the qualities sure. of them. Yeah, I know. I think that's I, I think that's unavoidable, and and it's good that you brought that up because, well, one of the most well known troubles, according to the stories that Diogenes got into, uh, a pretty serious trouble was with Alexander the Great. Hmm. I didn't read this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But so, I, so uh, Alexander the Great, uh, he he found. 
the story goes, he found Diogenes looking at a pile of human bones after a battle. And Diogenes says, I am searching for the bones of your father, but I can't distinguish them from those of a slave. Huh. That didn't go over <laughs> <laughs> apparently too well. Um, <clears throat> apparently lived, but even so, it. but when you think about that, hmm. this essentially saying, you're no different than any other human being in the basic parts of your being itself. Hmm. Alexander. Here's a slave. Here's your father. Which one? They're bones. Can you tell which bones? And and there's a wisdom in that. But then there's also the snarkiness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the sassiness of talking back to, uh, to power. And I think a lot of people now think they're being cynical by um, challenging anything that they don't want to believe about the government. But that's not what Diogenes was doing. Diogenes was taking something specific and saying, let's question this. He, he was following a kind of really coarse Socratic method. Yeah, yeah. And, and like you said, there's there's more of an edge to it, right? Because like you said, skepticism, um, skepticism is, can, is values neutral by definition, right? If you're a skeptic, you're not taking anything at face value you're not starting with with some presuppositions you're saying okay let me look at this and then sort of suss out what the truth of the matter is cynics are starting with a values-laden position saying that virtue right is is what's right and that things like wealth and fame and status and these other things get in the way um and so then you know with the built-in kind of aggression right you've been named after dogs you know you're you're doing these things um kind of embracing that that archetype yeah um then it leads you to challenge these people who do have wealth and fame and power and uh yeah i could see it becoming quite a combustible uh especially i mean if you know anything about alexander the great and his you know his father (laughs) like they it's probably not the guy you wanted to insult (laughs) about his father but like you said there is a wisdom there right um that that is separate from skepticism um, and it is separate from, um, you know, other, other philosophies in, in the way that it is, uh, is presented. And, and that's the thing about, yeah, as you said, the, the refrigerator box. So how many of us have been approached by somebody who's a street person? Hmm. I think many of us have. It's uncomfortable in the moment. Um, one's whole privilege is being put to question. Uh, not necessarily by the person directly, but even by the fact of, can, can you give me a dollar? Well, no, I can't give you a dollar. You know? <laughs> and of course you could. Right. But then you're doing the mental math. But what would you do with that dollar, sir? But do we do that mental math on ourselves hmm. uh, often? And so I, I can see it being, um, it's, we have Diogenes as <laughs> on our own streets. People who, uh, they, not not all people are homeless are mentally ill. Not all people are homeless or have uh, all kinds of medical issues. Except what maybe have they just happen to fall through the crack. There are a lot of people out on the street who, uh, ten weeks ago, five years ago, were uh, pretty major players <laughs> in their own areas. Okay, so or ordinary people who worked, and then the the safety net didn't work. And if we think about, but we don't often stop and think about that. We just separate 
yeah. ourselves. So to me, that's going to be an odd equation. <laughs> Don't give up on me. There is a, there is a kind of um, great teacher, Christ-like flavor in some of the Diogenes stories. Not equating, just saying, you know, who was, who was the radical who was constantly upsetting people and getting under their skin? And in the sacred, in the uh, sacred text, in the in, in the stories of, well, uh, Buddha had been well to do, but he had questioned a whole lot of people, lots of leaders. Yeah, do yeah. This. No, that's a good point. As um, you know, Buddha essentially lived an ascetic lifestyle. You know, I mean, he he lived under a tree. You know, and was, was <laughs> like you said, I'm Jesus. Uh, you know, hey, give away all your stuff. Come follow me, you know. Yes, yes. And these sorts of these sorts of things. So it is that is a common trope um, across religious or philosophical um, leaders, and even in less severe um, philosophies, you still see that element of um, de-emphasizing materialism. You know, yeah. maybe yeah. not to the extent of asceticism, but this idea that. You know, an, an accumulation of things are really just going to get in your way when it comes to um, your your psychological, spiritual life. Yes. Why are you accumulating, you, us, any of us? I mean, I, I implicate myself entirely in, in this. When I say you, I should say why we. Why, why did, uh, when we are willing to look at why we might be purchasing something and we ask ourselves why, and then we find our, find it okay to do so, or we've 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 gone through that. We're doing something that that I think the cynics, perhaps at their best, and I'm always cautious about this because again we have it's not a formal school. Uh, there's not there weren't rules and regulations and so on. Just one dogma. Um, but you know, one of the other things that that Diogenes is, is said to have said. Is of, of what use is a philosopher who doesn't hurt anybody's feelings? Hmm. You know. Now, now I, I think if you, when you read the dialogues, Plato's dialogues, uh, starring Socrates, then you, <laughs> then you you find some feelings that could be damaged or bruised or wounded. Young people, no, no, I'm right, or no, I didn't mean that, or you know, I, I think that philosophy necessarily upsets the apple cart yeah yeah but diogenes was willing to say apparently hey you're gonna get your feelings hurt <laughs> yeah yeah um so we've talked about you know what separates cynicism from skepticism um and, and now we're sort of transitioning into our modern use of cynicism mm -hmm. um when did that change occur when did we start when do we stop thinking about cynicism as a, a philosophical sort of school and really just distill it down into this um, sort of negative word? I think it's traceable to, I think linguists would make it traceable to um, the, the industrial post-industrial revolution time uh, uh, up till now, but but maybe even more so to the, the Great Depression. Um, when when uh, a, a whole system seems 
to be falling apart. And everything that people thought they believed in isn't necessarily what they thought they believed in. Uh, there's a fragility and a vulnerability and, and, uh, uh, and that's an opening for the, the more negative. Yeah. And that's a really interesting thing to say, because when you think about it, I think pretty much any time there's a sea change in a culture that's going to bring out some cynicism. And you can even argue that the good changes are going to do that because what is a good change for one segment of the population is going to be a bad change for another segment, right? In the industrial revolution, right? Um, the, the sort of artisan, um, makers, they probably didn't think that this automation and then machinery was, you know, these cheaper mass produced goods were, were a good thing. Right? No. And that's why you had the, <laughs> the, uh, people, the, the story, which there is some truth to this, of, of people throwing shoes, wooden shoes, into machinery hmm. uh, to protest. Um, and uh, no, they weren't happy about it. And, and, and that's what makes, that is, it makes you question, you know, your, your life, each part of it. Cause we've talked about it in the past, how, um, I forget if it was Socrates or Plato, one of them sort of railed against writing because he thought that that technology was going to ruin people's Interestingly, memories. Interestingly, it was Plato. Plato, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Plato thought that writing was going to ruin people's memories. And then you have people who thought the radio writing. was bad, thought the TV was bad, right. thought that computers and, and, and cell phones are, are bad. And the fact of the matter is that you can't outright reject some of the things that these people are saying, right? No. And I, so again, with any sea change, um, I think that there is good and bad. Um, sometimes for certain segments of the population may benefit or be damaged by it more. But I think in some ways, every person that's part of uh, a huge shift, whether it be technological or political or, or whatever, everybody feels that effect of, of, either positive or negative yeah. influence and sometimes a little bit of both. But. Yeah. 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 Sure. So what separates cynicism from pes pessimism in our modern sense? That's a really good question. Another ism. We generally work with a definition of pessimism as having always a gloomy, dark view of things. Um, and we associate negativity to that. <laughs> the connotation is, well, you're such a pessimist. Well, and, and you know, people who are pessimists, well, this is you and I were communicating this this week. It turns out from a very, very large medical study that is longitudinal, which means it's gone on for uh, years. Uh, it turns out that expressions of Righteous anger. Now, if the, the word righteous has some expressions of, of, of contempt, depending on where, what is, is the source of causing the rise of that to, to vent those things, uh, and vent by so-called venting, um, express them and not being suppressing them within yourself. It appears that there is some indication that 
uh, people who are older who um, get angry about things <laughs> and express uh, contempt and express pessimism are actually healthier <laughs> have in the sense of seem to have significantly fewer heart attacks hmm. than people who are always well sort of doing the monty python the, the life of brian my, one of my favorite movies and, and i know this is going to just be sacrilegious to some but jesus is on the cross and and he starts singing always look on the bright side of life <laughs> you know? now put that aside for a minute but think about the, the how many times a day do people get especially women smile why aren't you smiling how can you know let me start to hear the the, the quintessential joker uh in the the batman trilogy with heath ledger saying why so serious right? <laughs> you know we we have this really ill relationship one could argue with, with medical studies of always needing to try to be happy. Hmm. And this has invaded work culture. This has invaded corporate culture such that it collegiate institutions where there are workshops ongoing where people are, you have to present a happy face. Everyone there, we cannot have any unhappy employees. Well, that's very Orwellian in a, in a, a so, so I've skidded off the, uh, with this, but I, to, to pull it back, um, pessimism means having uh, a more often than not a dim view of how people are or how a system is. Skepticism is uh, really has two uh, large meanings that we we seem to use in this culture, and and one is to be uh, always needing to question. And we've talked about that, and the other. And the other is to assume that anything that someone else says is arising out of self-interest. Hmm. Yeah. That's where it crosses sort of to right. cynicism. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so on, on the vacation we just took, I'm, I'm going to send you this podcast when we're done. And anybody else who wants to look it up... Um, I don't remember the name of of the lady, but I know the podcast. It's one of my favorites. Is uh, Hidden Brain? Oh yes, yes, Shankar Vedantin. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's an amazing. Yeah, so he did um, an interview with a a Dutch woman who um, this is her area of specialty is um, looking at language and and how emotions translate, um, and she found. Similar results. I wouldn't be surprised if this was was one of her studies that you're talking about. I didn't have a chance to to look it up before we did the show, but um, she did a study and found that uh, you know Americans um, do benefit from expressing these negative feelings in their physical health. But what she found is that that is culturally unique. Hmm. And so when you looked at Japanese people, um, Japanese people actually benefited from what we Americans call bottling up mm. negative emotions. But in Japan, it's not looked at that way. And this is where language has a huge impact, right? Yes, yes. In America, if you say, oh, you're bottling up your emotion, that sounds like you're doing something negative. Whereas in Japanese culture, um, she stumbled upon this because one of the ways she had worded one of her questionnaires, she was frustrated because the Japanese people said this question 
um, doesn't make sense to us. I think it was how, how deeply or strongly do you feel X emotion? And they said, well, this doesn't really, this doesn't make sense to us um, because of the language. And what they found is that um, Japanese people actually take um, a sort of pride and satisfaction in um, internalizing these negative emotions and then um, not reacting to them. And that's mm-hmm. built into their culture. And then she went into in sort of anecdotal account um, of how even a Western European society like hers, um, you know, her being Dutch, she said when she came to the U.S., um, she she committed a few faux pas um, that had to do with how language and emotions translate across culture. She said in, in you know, in Dutch culture, um, it's a compliment um, to tell somebody that they look tired because mm-hmm. it means that they've been working hard so she said you know she came over and she was invited to this conference it was being put on by this <laughs> this colleague that that she really admired and she uh ran into her in the bathroom and she said you know wow you look you look really tired you know you, this you, this must be a lot of work and yeah. the other woman you know was really embarrassed and tried to fix her makeup and do all this stuff right yeah yeah and, this is interesting and so and another one that she said was that in in dutch culture um they don't say the word thank you to people close to them. So she said, if if somebody does you a favor or somebody comes over to eat or does those sorts of things, if it's sort of a formal or a, a relationship or they're an acquaintance, um, you thank them if they do something. But if it's a close friend, you don't say thank you. And she said my her husband, who's American, when they first started going out, you know, he'd bring her coffee and you know, she'd just nod and he'd say, well, would it kill you to say thank you? And she, and to her, that was an insult because if she were to say thank you, that would mean that they had a much they more distant, a distant relationship. Right, right, yeah, a much yeah. more distant relationship. Than they had. So again, our our philosophical themes combine here, talking about emotion, talking about language, um, and and when we think about cynicism or pessimism or skepticism, and how we define these categories, um, there's a big cultural element as well. Um, that plays into these, and and so coming up with these definitions is is a little bit is a little bit tricky. It is, um, and this is a wonderful trip you just took us to uh, back to our root, which is always language. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not. It's it's really interesting to me that uh, there was this piece that I read this week about current uh, American uh, pop culture in uh, science fiction and fantasy genres. And, and not just American, br- British as well, that it seems to be focused always on the dark, things falling apart and so on. And, and the, the person who's writing this article is saying that this is where we're in, in trouble because we're telling stories of darkness and things falling apart. And we owe it to ourselves to tell us ourselves stories of where we solve things and where things are, are bright again. And I have really mixed feelings about that, not just because of that, you know, that medical study, which is one thing, and it may well have been associated with that, that woman you're right, you're talking about. Um, because stories, if they're honest and they're compelling, are going to be telling us about what we're feeling. Hmm. And if we're feeling that things are falling apart, it's not wrong to have stories telling us about how we respond when things fall apart. It's because that, that article was seemingly making an assumption rather like some people make about Aesop, 
<laughs> that all of this, the story that I tell is going to have this moral and this is what you should get from it, uh, rather than it's reflective of culture. Yeah. Yeah. And that was another example that she gave. Um, she was talking about her kids being in American school and her, her mother um, meeting her kid's teacher. And, um, you know, the teacher, you can imagine, a, a, you know, a, an elementary school teacher. Um, her mother walked away from the interaction very um, insulted, sort of, because yeah, she, yes. she thought of this elementary school teacher as being disingenuous. Oh, your kid is so smart. And he does all these things and whatnot. <laughs> and she said, well, in Dutch culture, like if, if you're, you, you respect somebody and you have a close relationship with them, you're always honest. You always tell them exactly the way things are. Hey, I don't like this or, you know, yeah, this thing that you did was so, so or whatever. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and they yeah. said, you know, in America, you know, everything is always, everything's always good. Everything is always. And I think that that's reflected in what you were saying. And I think that the, the challenge to the American people, right. It's, we have this sort of, um, strange bipolar identity going on, right. Where, mm-hmm. We have this intense cynicism towards um, political institutions and and other aspects of society, um, but then in sort of our interpersonal interactions, we hold this high standard of you know facing everything with a smile and presenting everything in the the brightest light and all these sorts of things, and it's it's almost it's almost schizophrenic in a way, right? where it's how how can you do that? How can you both be so focused on happiness, which we've talked about before, um, is not a solid state. Um, in, it's, it's not sustainable. Right, right. And it, it doesn't make you terrible if you have moments of pessimism. If, if you're always living in pessimism and it's affecting your mental health, uh, that I have to hasten to say I'm not making light of that, of course, because any – any expectation of any one steady state, as you just said, is not is not is not balance hmm. for a, for a person. I think, and and we recognize that, but but we to just associate all kinds of negativity, and and it's really interesting if you look at it because there are both of their people of every political ilk, and I'm not being relativistic about this. Who could claim to be righteous cynics? Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can if you if you just insert statements that you that you hear in the rhetoric, you might say, "Oh, well, yeah, they're they're challenging culture, they're challenging the society the way it is." But it's really for what purpose? And and you know, the cynics' purpose was not to get back to some kind of ideal that never existed. It was to make oneself better. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's there's other interesting studies that go along with that, that, that back up what you're saying, um, looking at news cycles, right? They found that, um, you know, s- you know, subjecting people to essentially gamesmanship news cycles, um, which is the predominant news that you receive now, increases cynicism in people. Whereas if you give people dry facts-based news it, it does not do that so it, it, and then what happens is you create this sort of vicious feedback loop mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. you present gamesmanship news whether you're on the right or the left or whatever this causes people to be cynical about other people and here's where the 
the the difference between cynicism and pessimism is important is pessimism is a negative outlook on outcomes so if you're if you're pessimistic you're thinking that something is probably going to turn out bad if you're a cynic you have a negative outlook on people's motivations so if you're presented with negative news you take on a cynical outlook so you have a negative view of the other side's motivations. And then what happens is the more cynical you are, that creates cynicism in people on the other side. And you have this self-perpetuating cycle that drives things further and further apart. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of sad in a way that, that if you look at these media companies, right, these news agencies that that present these far left or far right um viewpoints you know undoubtedly their motivation is you know first off their ideals think that the way to fix the country is to be a certain way and so they try to do that by persuading people to their side and but what they don't see is that in doing that in using the language and in using the things that they do to convince people to join their side they're in imbuing them with a skeptical, a cynical attitude that causes them to divide America even further apart than fix any problems. You are such an idealist. <laughs> when you just, I'm realizing I'm, I, I still have clingy elements of that within me, but I, when you just said what you said, and you said, well, the first thing that these media companies are thinking about. And it was such an ideal view. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. It's dollar size. I'm thinking about how can I, but, but so it's good. It's good for me to hear you say that because we, we, we can, we can go down our, this, this trope from Alice in Wonderland that I never thought would become a trope going down the rabbit hole. Well, you know, people don't follow what the, the, the logical extension of that metaphor. Because again, people don't talk about metaphors nearly as much as you would like. To go down the rabbit hole, which is what Alice did, was to become uh, totally perplexed by and and disconnected from anything but nonsense. Hmm. And that still works. But Alice emerges having thought a whole lot about words and what they mean and and what nonsense can do to you when she comes back to the world. It's it's not a didactic tale, but it's but when you go down a rabbit hole, you usually can emerge with some pretty important things. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you know, I think that it, it is funny. I I think that so the cynicism and you know, I just gave the example with the media companies. And so you and I, we might disagree there on on their motivations at the top, right? And that those attitudes probably come from different interactions that we've had uh, of throughout <laughs> our lives, right? Um, and I find that with with myself a lot, which is that um, you know there's a lot of people that I disagree with, a lot of positions that I disagree with, but I think at the core, I always like to believe that people really want the best outcomes for themselves and in a utilitarian way as many other people as as possible, right? And usually I'm rewarded for that belief. And so it perpetuates 
this um yeah, yeah. this anti-cynicism yeah, yeah. well <laughs> but other people are not right I, you know depending on other circumstances like like we said you know the news cycle is one small i shouldn't say small one uh, moderate part of everybody's life everybody's interactions everybody's views yeah. but their interpersonal interactions with others um all interactions with anybody else can determine how how cynical or how trusting somebody might be in human nature it's, itself. This is why I so valued being a teacher. And and those moments still emerge because I wouldn't want to be talking into this thing, this microphone mm-hmm. that and 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 uh, I think somebody is, is saying, oh well he's celebrating an absolute cynicism. No, no I'm not. If I did, then I would have growled at you about saying that about media, but I'm not saying, you know, that it's good that someone has that. It's that sort of pulls one back. And that's what a conversation is for is to uh, sometimes throw out a lifeline. Sometimes yeah, there's a little uh, undertow down there. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But, but I also, part of my training in, in English and literature was in finding the joy of, of writers like Oscar Wilde. Who, the time period I was talking about when cynicism was, um, I think, canting a different direction. An amazing writer of, of, of stories and, and fables and, and plays and, and um, ha- haunted and hunted because of his own sexual, his own gender, sexuality. But he says, well, what is a cynic? A man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Hmm. <laughs> and that takes us more to the capitalistic notion of, um, I know how much that thing costs you, and I wouldn't spend money on that. Without saying, yes, but if none of us is spending money on anything, what kind of culture would we have? Maybe it'd be a fine culture, but it's, you know, it's that, that questioning doesn't seem to happen. Yeah, I, I see us doing another episode related to time at some point, because I think that much like space time is a single continuous property, I feel like time money is also a single continuous property, right? Because yeah, yeah. in modern society, most of us um, work for money. And so as a result, the two are are intimately connected. And on top of that, it's relativistic, right? Because we don't all make the same amount of money. We all, all don't work the same amount of time. Mm-hmm. And so, like you said, the finding the price of things, uh, the price is an objective um, thing. It's it's your uh, your uh, type type one supernovas, right? They're, they're <laughs> your markers that give you the, the objective um, where you are in space with mm-hmm. money and, and time. But we all see that that price tag subjectively because we make different amounts of money. We spend different amounts of time to earn that money. The value of that thing is going to have a different value to each person based upon what they're... About the whole cluster of who they are. Yeah. A, a piece of meteorite? <laughs> you bet. Somebody else might say, I buy that? You betcha. Why are you buying a piece of rock? Yeah. How do you even know that's from space? Now, you tell me, skepticism, cynicism, pessimism, because you know somebody would say this, are you kidding me? You bought this piece of rock and they told you it was from from outer space. How do you know that? Right. So yeah. what, what, is there 
So yeah, there's several different ways. So I mean, one of the, so <laughs> I bought a piece of meteorite on my last vacation just to fill in the blanks, but yeah, so there's a couple things. Um, one was they have a certificate of authenticity from the international, uh, aeronautics union yeah. with it. Um, the other part of it is that, um, asteroids and meteorites have very sp- specific looks to them um, because of the environment that they're formed in. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. lots of times um, you can look at these rocks and just tell that they're out of this world just by the appearance of them. Um, because there's the, usually the, the environment they're formed in is in space. So the gravity is much lower. Um, the metallic composition is different because mm-hmm. whereas on Earth you have a lot of nickel and iron in the core and those sorts of things in space, you have a lot of other um, metallic um, so elements. the authority of science and the aesthetic uh, impression that it leaves and and I I wasn't trying to push it to someplace you didn't want to you know talk about I just think it's it's because because we are in a culture now that is trying to so much of our culture, not entirely, of course, is trying to devalue any notion of authority. We've talked about that before, and trying to devalue a notion of aesthetics. And when you take these elements of philosophy away, you also remove any foundational um, and source. And so that then then a very strange kind of skepticism or or worse cynicism can can emerge. Yeah, no, I think that it's a really good example. I'm glad you brought it up because it does. It sort of, in a nutshell, encapsulates what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, a cynical, so approaching a meteorite purchase with a cynical attitude, right, would be questioning the motivations of the seller. Okay, why are they selling me a meteorite? Um, what what are they looking for here? That's not necessarily a bad attitude to have. A skeptical attitude is probably a, a better attitude to have, which is mm-hmm. what you just brought up. Well, how do I know this is from space? How do I know this is authentic? That sort of thing. But I think that it's important to, to again, put the definition of the two in because, like you said, in modern terms, a lot of people are talking about cynicism when in reality they're just talking about outright denial based off of their internal value system rather than facts or, you know, yes. authoritative yes. Um, findings. So that's the important part is I, and I think that now we're getting to the, that sort of the crux of the issue that, that applies to modern listeners, right? Yep. Is this yep. idea of um, cynicism versus what would you even call that? Just outright denial. I right? think denial is the right word. Yeah. Mm. Denialism, which we are, in spades yeah. <laughs> dealing with right now um, it's it's of the essence of the of the place that we live i know we have places internationally that we have people in different countries that i'm i'm humbled and and delighted that people in different places are listening to us and and i don't know enough uh, about any particular place on earth <laughs> um, but we all know we seem to think we know about our own home base best. And if you care about your home base, <laughs> then then you you then not to say something um not to to slam and 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 blast but to say something that to uh, urge um it's not preservation 
that's not quite the right word. Um, there are things that we don't need to preserve, but to urge its continued development. So how, there, I give you some idealism. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, because I still believe in that. I yeah. still think we, 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 it, we, we either try to make things better, or we throw up our hands and say we can't do anything. Which is, or or we embrace not being able to do anything, and oh well, I'm just going to live entirely for myself. Can't care about anybody else. You know, I think many of us go through the spectrum of saying various things like that mm -hmm. in any given day. Uh, so I'm certainly guilty. Um, but I think if we look at it really hard and we say, do we really believe in something still? Do we? Um, then, then there's the cynical part of us that says, if we believe in something, we need to question. Hmm. That for me is where the cynical part is good. There's times when you can sit and have a nice Socratic dialogue. We seem very much not interested in that in our culture to me. Well, what's next? Growling at people <laughs> and saying, you know what? If you're rich and you have a wonderful place, uh, there, there's obviously in your nice fancy place, there's no place to spit except in your face. Now, I would never <laughs> say that to somebody. If Diogenes said it, well, he's he's got more cojones than I do. <laughs> yeah. uh, but 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 the value is in saying anything can be said if it needs to be said in order to um, make someplace better. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, our, going back to our example of cynicism with the news cycle, right? Um, and again, we, we talk about cynicism in a pejorative way. Um, and this gamesmanship news cycle increasing cynicism. But if you think about cynicism as the questioning of people's motives, and you think, well, if, we, if you look at the, the gamesmanship news cycle, rather than it causing you to question the motives of the person on the other side of the aisle from you, if it caused you instead to question the motives of the media company presenting the news cycle, mm -hmm. then you would have a constructive cynicism. Yeah. Um, and much like Diogenes said, right, um, you're not going to have cynicism without somebody getting their feelings hurt. And that's that's an essential element of questioning somebody's motives. Right? Now, if your primary purpose, and this is what I hasten because I, I realize I'm listening to my head of what I just said a couple moments ago. If your primary purpose is is to hurt somebody's feelings, then you're not accomplishing anything. Mm. If your purpose is to say things that may feel harsh, but ultimately lead to more questions that then say, well, so what can we rebuild here? Then I think there's something to it. Um, there was somebody of uh, the other. Uh, um, well, I'll just keep this completely, completely as neutral, vague as I can, because I think the more universal model might work. A person who serves in government has uh, has a spouse who is hurt, who is attacked. Let's say, what if, and that and that person was attacked is uh, seriously hurt. Um, and somebody um, who works with the, the person who's in government, whose spouse has been hurt, says, "We think uh, we we send. Uh, we're very sorry that that this happened, but we very much hope that you're going to have to go home and spend the rest of your time taking care of that person." Mm. 
There's no way you can construe a statement like that as being a one of empathy or, or kindness. It's a, it's, it's a thinly veiled, we really want you out of here. Now, if a cynic said that, if Diogenes had said that, uh, I think it probably would have been an attempt to start a, a verbal fight <laughs> <laughs> to question where emotions are and what it's and what are the, the structures that a society says it values. And and so and, and if a pessimist heard that and said, "Well, yeah, of course, because that's how people are," they just ultimately thinking about themselves uh, or a skeptic. You know, so I, I think any 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 ordinary thing that happens, we have the capacity, if we let ourselves put any number of different philosophical models, take that condition, that that situation, that example, and say, what does that teach us about who we are? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, so that's what it comes down to is like we like I promised in the intro, you know, we were going to talk about cynicism and, and really bring out some of the, the fascinating and thought provoking things about it. And, you know, I think that it's been a good episode because we've informed listeners about the the philosophical sort of um, not school, but, you know, thought behind cynicism that they might not have been aware of and behind some of the constructive ways it can be applied. So until next time, keep on.